I like movies. I don't watch as many as I used to. I watch a lot of the old Disney ones now with my kids. Uh, I like Cars. Those are fun. Um, but there is a movie that came out, I don't know now, it's been probably eight years, um, The Greatest Showman. Have you guys seen that? The music's fantastic. Really good music. If you know the story, it's about Barnum, right? Uh, anybody go to Barnum and Bailey before it shut down? I got to do that with Haley early on in our marriage. Um, but it's about the story of, of Barnum and how he started this this circus. And early on in the movie, he's going around the city trying to find, like a better words, these freaks, these people that look different, uh, that have these obscure maybe gifts or talents, maybe people that have been rejected by society. So he's pursuing these people to make them a part of his show. It's really a show all about oddities, right? He wants people to be wowed by, he says, the macabre, the strange, the different. And so he's going around finding people that society has rejected, bringing them into his show. And what happens is they really, in the movie it's portrayed like this, they form a family. And these people now feel like they belong. They they, they have a family to belong to. And so they got, you know, Barnum, who's kind of leading the charge, caring for them. But they look around and they see people, you know, that are different from them, but also like them in some respects. But they're a part of this, this, this show. And uh, they have purpose now. And I thought, man, what a great pointer to the gospel. You know, we're, we're the rejects. We're the outcasts. We're the sinners. Again, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's all of us. And he pursued us, and he brings us into a family. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. We're vertically reconciled to God through Jesus, but horizontally brought into this family that we now belong to. Amen? That's what the gospel does. The title of my teaching is, For the Sake of Our Joy. Uh, Who longs for joy? Who has joy? Oh, and if you have Christ, you have joy. If you know Jesus, you know joy. Um, the, the major theme, so we're going to look at the prologue of 1 John, which is the first four verses. And this is going to fit well with our study in John's Gospel. So John the Apostle, who wrote John's Gospel, wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and also the book of Revelation, right? Revelation. So um, we'll look at this book as we're going through John, we'll take much more time in John's gospel. We'll probably finish this up by summertime, maybe sooner. I'm not sure. But um, looking at the first four verses, the prologue, here's the big idea. True joy is found in fellowship with God, that's the vertical, and his church. Okay, So true joy is found through or in fellowship with God and in his church. And we really shouldn't separate the two. Okay, The gospel brings us vertically into God's family, right? We're reconciled to God, but also brought into the family of God. Um, So again, I I dig this. I enjoy this. Looking at some of the introductory matters, we'll talk about what was going on when John wrote this letter. Why did he write this letter? What was the need? Who, Who wrote this letter? Well, obviously John. We'll talk about that. Let's start with the situation and purpose. Most scholars agree that John, 1 John, was a circular letter written to the church in Ephesus as well as to other churches in Asia Minor. It, it was a shared letter. Okay? It was shared amongst these churches in Asia Minor. Now, what situation gave rise to 1 John? Why was this letter written? What was the purpose? There appears to have been a schism, a division within some of these churches. And this resulted in an exodus, a departure. A group within the church left the church. And we see this in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. Now, why did people leave? Why did they leave the church? It would appear, this is important, here's the situation. It would appear that their leaving, their departure, their exodus centered on beliefs and behaviors. So think the two Bs, beliefs and behaviors that were no longer in line with the teachings of Jesus in the word of God. We're going to call this group that left the secessionists, okay? The secessionists. I'm going to show you from scripture, what were the issues? Why did they leave? What were the beliefs and behaviors that they embraced that were not in line with Christ and his word? So first, they denied the incarnation of the Son of God. 
That's 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Second, they denied that Jesus was the Christ. Remember, that's the whole reason John wrote his gospel. Remember John 20, 31? And these works, these acts, these miracles are written, they're included so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that, you may have life in his name. And so this group that left, not only did they deny the incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity became God, I'm sorry, became man, that God became man, but also that Jesus was not the Christ. And further, they pushed for a loose morality. Sin was not taken seriously by this group. And John labels this form of teaching later in his letter as antichristos, which means antichrist, opposed to Christ, against Christ. Now, how would you feel if half the church left because they embraced false teaching? Let's say a false teacher came into town and he's holding services at the Expo Center and some of our members go and, and they listen to this teacher and he's denying fundamental doctrines that we hold dear as believers and half the church leaves. How would you feel? And maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your mom and your sister and your brother. Maybe it's your spouse. How would you feel? Yeah, you feel terrible, broken hearted. So the departure of so many, the threat of false teachers, that's 1 John 2.26, those who are trying to deceive you and their denial of fundamental Christian doctrine would have likely caused confusion and possibly doubts for some of those who remained faithful to the true gospel. Therefore, John writes, here it is, John writes his letter so that the church might have assurance of their salvation based on the true gospel and evidenced by good works. Because division has taken place, it is necessary for John to restate the truth, the gospel, for the saints who have remained, so that they may have confidence in what they believe and that what they believe results in eternal life, life with God. So John's purpose, there are... You know, if you read John's gospel, there's one major purpose statement at the end. In 1 John, which is only five chapters, there's multiple purpose statements throughout. So the purpose of John's letter is manifold, okay? Let me give you a few. So 1 John 1, 3 and 4, which we'll look at tonight. And we might, have got, we might not make it through the whole introduction. I'm going to do my best, but I'm going to stop on time, I promise. He writes, John writes, so that his lead, the church his readers. And that's us as well. Amen? Is this relevant for us as well 2,000 years later? You betcha because it's God's word. It's universally true. So he writes so that his readers may have and enjoy both vertical and horizontal fellowship where true joy is found. That's 1 John chapter 1, 3 and 4. And then we go to 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. John writes so that God's people will not sin. Now get this. Okay, if I was going to summarize John's letter, here's what I'd say. John believes not that Christians can be sinless, but because of God's grace in the work of the Spirit, we can sin less. Do you see the difference? He doesn't argue that we can be sinless. Okay, that's foolish. Uh, you better acknowledge that you're a sinner. I do every day, right? But because of the power of the gospel and the work of the Spirit, we can sin less. So he writes so that God's people would not sin. And then we get to chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. He writes to instill assurance on the basis of what the gospel has produced in the lives of God's people. What are those things? Forgiveness, knowledge, and victory. Okay. So he writes to instill assurance. That's a big theme, purpose in 1 John. He wants the church to know, those who have remained to know that they know that they have salvation in Christ. Aren't you glad that we can have assurance of salvation? You know, I've talked to a lot of Muslims um, when I was in Albania and the time that I spent in Cameroon. You know, I talked to a lot of Muslims, especially in Albania. Albania is primarily Muslim and atheist. It's only 1%, less than 1% Christian. And I spent a lot of time there, three summers in a row. And you talk to Muslims and you talk about assurance. They don't have any assurance. They hope that on the last day when they stand before Allah, which is not real, by the way, that their good works will outweigh their bad works. And if they don't, that's it. Sorry. Oh, can you imagine that? 
Here's the last thing I want to emphasize as far as purpose. 1 John 5, 13. He writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that they may know that they have eternal life. Their assurance is grounded in their belief. Their assurance is grounded in their belief. Again, 1 John 5, 13. So this will be helpful. John seems to be concerned primarily with two things. How many? Two things. Gospel truth and gospel living. We could call this orthodoxy and orthopraxis. Orthodoxy, think of right beliefs. Orthopraxis, right living. That is the concern that John has. He's concerned about Christians having right beliefs and right living. He wants his audience to rest, yes, in Christ's finished work. It's 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And yet, he's convinced that those who belong to Christ will give external evidence of their faith through their transformed lives. That's 1 John 2, 3 and 6. Can we rest in what Christ has done? But because we've trusted in what Christ has done, should there be evidence of change in our lives? Should there be fruit? Yeah, and John's concerned with both, okay? Are we saved by works? No, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, if you go 8, 9, and 10, we're saved for works. Not by works. We're saved by Christ's work, our faith in Christ's work, by grace. But we are saved for works. I love what Luther said. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never what? It's never alone. It's always accompanied by fruit. He wasn't Scottish. I'm not sure why I did that. Um, John wants his readers to have assurance, but he in no place advocates for a small gospel. What's a small gospel? A small gospel, a small understanding of the gospel is, yeah, you know, pray a prayer, trust in Jesus, you're forgiven, and go on with life. No. Now, part of that's true. What I just said is true. We trust in Jesus. The gospel provides forgiveness, but it also provides what? say all the time transformation life change that's the promise of the new covenant right that's jeremiah 31 and ezekiel 36 it's not just forgiveness but transformation now what you believe and how you live again orthodoxy and orthopraxis are both emphasized in this letter think of it this way faith without works is what what do you call that someone who says they have faith but no works that's hypocrisy works without faith is moralism or do-goodism Neither one are true or supported by Scripture, right? Both are bad. So faith without works is hypocrisy. Works without faith is moralism. The gospel requires faith and produces works. Again, salvation is by grace through faith, but the byproduct is what? This is really important. I'm going to say it a lot, okay? It's works. It's fruit. Um, so to put it more simply, let me just get really simple. First John is about doctrine and doing. Doctrine and doing. Both are necessary for the believer to have assurance of salvation. Now, in light of the schism, right, there's this division, there's this departure, and the false doctrine and the ungodly living associated with those who left the church, John writes to point to his readers what? The true gospel that not only saves but results in life change. Now, the false gospel embraced by others can do neither. It can't save and it can't change you, right? So if you embrace a false gospel, you're not saved and you're not going to be changed. Well, you might be changed, but not for the good. You're not going to look more like Christ. Is true? Now, if you said, hey, Chris, okay, that's a lie. Give it to me straight. What is 1 John? It's a litmus test. It's a litmus test for the church to show the genuineness of their faith, their salvation. And that litmus test runs from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 5. And this litmus test should be applied to all Christians, all churches, right? So here's the question. Does the church affirm and teach these things? Here they are. For example, here's the litmus test. I'm going to run through it. First John. First John 1 John 1.7. Do you walk in the light? Do you walk in the light? First John 1 John 1.8. Do you confess sin? First John 2.3. Do you keep his commandments? First John 2.6. We know that one. Do you walk like Jesus? 1 John 2.9, do you hate your brother? Your Christian brother, do you hate him? Or sister? 1 John 2.10, do you love your brother? Do you love your fellow Christian? 1 John 2.15, do you love the world? 
do you love the world? I'm going to teach on all these, by the way. But this is the litmus test. These are the questions that John is asking his readers. Again, he wants them to have assurance. But, I mean, do you walk in the light? Do you love the world? Do you hate your brother? If you hate your brother and you love the world, should you have assurance? No. John would say unabashedly, no. Let's keep going. 1 John 3, 3. Do you continue to sin? Now, I think 1 John can lead to confusion because we all sin. And John says, if you claim to have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. The difference, what he's talking about, do you love your sin? Do you revel in it? When Christians sin, what is there? There's conviction. There's hatred of sin. And we want to turn from it and run from it. And we're going to seek God's glorious resources, right? his means of grace to make war on it. He's saying, but if you, if you love your sin and you continue to sin, and you revel in your sin, you shouldn't have what? You shouldn't have assurance. 1 John 3.16, do you lay down your life for your fellow brothers? 1 John 3.24, do you have the Spirit? 1 John 4.15, do you confess that Jesus is the Son of God? And then 1 John 4.16, do you abide in love? Again, gospel truth results in gospel living. These two go hand in hand, okay? Orthodoxy, Orthopraxis, doctrine and doing, right? Doctrine and doing. That's the emphasis. Okay, who wrote 1 John? Now, why is that important? Now, listen, you should know because I talked about authorship in John's gospel recently, and I pointed out something really cool, okay? There's that 1 John 4.12. Well, we're not going to look at 1 John 4.12. There's John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side. The Greek who is in the Father's bosom. He has made him known. Now again, to lean against someone's bosom, their chest, in that culture was a place of honor and a place of intimacy. Jesus, the Son of God, was at the Father's bosom. Okay? Which means the Son and the Father had what kind of relationship? Intimate, sweet, right? But then you get to John 13, 23, and it says, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved was reclining at table against Jesus's bosom, like hanging out, leaning against Jesus, place of honor, place of intimacy, right? So here's, here's the point I made several weeks back in John. The son's intimate relationship with the father makes him the ideal witness, the ideal revealer. Who better to reveal the father than the son who knows him intimately, right? All right. John, the beloved disciple, because of his intimate relationship with the Son, makes him the ideal witness. Does that make sense? Let me read our text. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. I read this on Sunday. <laughs> that which was from the beginning. Does that sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word. So 1 John and John's Gospel, and all the way back in Genesis 1, 1, they all begin at the beginning. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. And we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. That's important. Was with whom? Was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That, John says, which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that, here's the purpose, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy, your joy, it's our joy, right? John is saying maybe what? Full or complete. Oh, man, are you excited? It's good. It's a good start, right? So 1 John begins much like John's Gospel. He begins at the beginning. And again, this is the prologue. And like any prologue in a piece of writing, it prepares us for what's to come. It sets the stage, right? We're going to see some major themes that are going to appear throughout the rest of the letter. But I want to compare the prologue quickly of John's gospel and the prologue of 1 John. Again, this is all introduction, so just bear with me. This is important, though. So let's compare the two. So let's read John 1. 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. It was all made through him. And I'm going to skip to verse 14. Because <laughs> again, John's prologue, the Gospel of John, is verse 1 to 18, which we've finished already. We're moving. We're still in chapter 1, though. <laughs> There's 21 chapters. We've got a long way to go. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, there's that emphasis in John's gospel. The Son came from the Father, with the Father. All right, and again, 1 John 1, 1 and 2. Now we're looking at 1 John again. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So what is John establishing at the beginning of his gospel and his letter? What does he want us to get? What does John want us to get? John has a very high Christology. What does that mean? He has a high view of Jesus, right? John's gospel, I mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago, it's more theological than any of the other gospels. That doesn't mean that the other gospels are theological. Don't think that at all. I'm not saying that. But again, if, if I said, hey, which gospel focuses most on the deity of Christ? What would you say? John. John, right? John's gospel. So John has a high Christology. He wants his readers to know that Jesus is fully or truly God and fully or truly man. So he establishes the incarnation. That, that's what makes, man, this this division, this schism so egregious is, can you have a gospel without the incarnation? You can't. And I mean, I made that argument, I think, last week, right? No, two weeks ago. I get the weeks confused. But two weeks ago, I made that argument. John is talking about Jesus, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity. And what does he highlight about Jesus? So I, I want to focus on three things in the prologue. So again, 1 John 1, 1 to 4, these are three things that we learn about Jesus. Number one, okay, and I'm going to go through this carefully and slowly, his nature and his identity. So John, in his prologue, in the first four verses of his letter, now again, what did I say about this schism? What did it concern? What was it over? It was over the nature and identity of Jesus. The false teachers were teaching that the incarnation did not happen and that Jesus is not the Christ. And so it makes sense that John begins his letter emphasizing the incarnation did happen and Jesus is the Christ. Does that make sense? If that's what's being denied by those who left, you better believe John isn't going to begin by emphasizing those truths. He is fully God, and he is the promised king. And as I said on Sunday, you can distill the Old Testament into two promises, right? God is coming to save the day. The king is coming to save the day. And guess what? Both of those promises intersect in the person of who? Jesus. Jesus. Isn't that cool? All right. So, number one, his nature and identity. Number two, his mission. Number three, his motive. That's what we learn about Jesus in the prologue. His nature and identity his mission, and his motive, why he came. Does that make sense? Who he is, what he came to do, and why. All right? So let's start with, and I'm going to look at the time. That's confusing me because I think it's i got 30 minutes. I think we're not going to finish, but we'll, we'll try. All right, number one, his nature and identity. He was in the beginning with the Father. Oh, and he's the Christ. How far back does from the beginning go? <laughs> what does John seek to convey with this phrase concerning the person of Jesus? This is one of the most theologically packed phrases in the entire New Testament. At the very least, it conveys that there was never a time when Jesus was not. Does that make sense? There was never a time when he was not because he always has been and he's always been with who? Okay, God the Father, right? So he's always been, and he's always been with the Father. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So the phrase, and I have like, if you read a commentary, like you'll get all the minutiae, this phrase where it's used in the Old Testament, uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I have all that. I'm not going to do that. Just believe me when I say the phrase from the beginning should be understood 
I can make a case for this from eternity past. From eternity past. Now, the focal person of John's letter, Jesus Christ, is divine. He's eternal. He's always been, and he's always been with the Father. That's really important that we get that. Now, check this out. Get this. So, that which was from the beginning. Who's that? Who's that talking about? Jesus. Now go to 1 John chapter 2, 13 and 14. Now, listen. Again, it's an introduction, so bear with me. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, the context there, verse 14, this is chapter 2 of 1 John, seems to be referring to the Father in light of the end of verse 13 where the Father is mentioned. So both the Father and the Son are from the beginning, which means from eternity past, meaning they're eternal, co-eternal, right? The Son's always been, and the Father's always been. Amen? It's true of the Son, it's true of the Father, and the? And the Spirit, all right? Now I want to look at the phrase, the Alpha and the Omega. What book is that found in? Revelation. Did I tell you my Revelation story? So when I was at the Boston Rescue Mission, um, I've told this story, I think, to a few people. So when I was in seminary, I, I lived at this homeless shelter for a summer. Oh, man, I got stories. Got bit in the head by a guy who had full-blown AIDS. I don't, I don't have AIDS, by the way, but you better believe I got checked out. Um, that was nuts. I'm not sure why I shared that, but I did. <laughs> I can't take it back. Uh, but a lot of crazy stories um, got puked on. Just anyways, but I, got to, I got to preach God's word there for three years. And I lived there for a summer, and I went every week and did Bible study, and I mentored these men that were drug addicts straight out of prison. I loved it. And one, one season, I was teaching through Mark's gospel, and this guy, Tex, who was from South Carolina, and everybody calls him Tex because in Boston, if you have a southern accent, they assume you're from where? From Texas. I'm not from Texas, but everybody called him Tex, and it just stuck. And this is, again, what a, why did I, this is not even relevant. Anyways, um, I said revelation, that's why. So Tex said, Chris, God told me to tell you something. And I'm like, okay. And I heard stuff like that all the time, by the way. Tex, what did he tell you to impart to me? Well, I know you're teaching the mark right now. And we're enjoying it. But God told me that you should stop that and start preaching through Revelations. Like, That's not the name of the book in the first place. So I know God wouldn't get that wrong. It's Revelation. Uh, and I, all I said was, Tex, I love you, brother, but he's not telling me that, so we're going to keep working through Mark. Okay. That was it. So that's my story. So, and then, he, no, that was a different guy. That was Dennis the Menace. Yeah. The Alpha and the Omega is found in Revelation. That's why. That's where that came from. Oh my goodness! What a rabbit trail. That's why we're not going to finish. Okay. So here, this is important though. So what we see in First John, this is important. The one who is from the beginning, chapter one is the Son. Chapter two is the Father. They're both from the beginning. They're both from eternity past. Now the Alpha and the Omega. Okay. So Revelation one eight and Revelation twenty one six, we see the Father speaking. Revelation one eight. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then Revelation 21, 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Okay. Now, let's go to Revelation 1, 7 and Revelation 22, 13. Here, they appear to be self-declarations of Jesus, the Son of God. Revelation 1, 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Revelation 22, 13. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The first, oh man, the first and the last. The beginning and the end. So, what we see here is that what is true of the Father is also true of the, of the Son. Both the Father and the Son are the Alpha and the Omega. And furthermore, Jesus claims to be the first and the last. And this comes from Isaiah. We're almost done with this, but this is good. Isaiah 44, verse 6, and also Isaiah 48, 12, but we're not going to look at that one. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. I'm the first and the last. And beside me what? There is no God. Now the context, as always, is very important here. Isaiah 44, God sets himself apart from all the false gods, right? They're not gods at all. 
He is sovereign. He is savior. He is creator. There's none like him. Jesus, as the first and the last, is eternal. He precedes all things. He is the sovereign creator who is at work bringing all of creation to its redemptive goal. Amen? Next, the language, this is the last part, the language from the beginning intentionally looks back, so good, to Micah 5 verse 2 and the promise of the coming Messiah, namely that his origins would be from everlasting, it can be read as from days eternal. <laughs> it's crazy, right? The, the Messiah to come, the king to come, where did he get his start? He's always been. <laughs> Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, or the Hebrew, from days of eternity. How long is that? Forever. Forever, okay? But again, the phrase, with the Father. As the Father has always been, the Son has always been, and the Son has always been with the? He's always been with the Father. They've always been together, united in purpose, united in fellowship, and equal in nature. John, again, we're talking about the nature and the identity of Jesus. John explicitly reveals both the divine nature of Jesus and his identity as Messiah in his prologue. He wants us to get that this Jesus is the Christ of promise and he is God. That is so important. Amen? Don't miss that. Jesus is, how do we put that together? He's the God King. He's the God King. And if you know, um, so in Mark's, this is just a bonus. I'm teaching on this tomorrow, by the way, at, uh, what's the name of the place I'm going? Meadowview Place, which is a? This living home. So I'm going to preach on Mark chapter 2. And 14 times in Mark's gospel, Jesus refers to himself as, anybody? Son of man, which is from what? What book? Daniel. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. One like a son of man, and he's brought before the ancient of days. And what are the people going to do when they stream to him? They're going to worship him and serve him. And the Jews in the first century thought this figure was a divine messianic figure to come. So Jesus is God, but he's also the promise. He's the promised king. He's the God king. All right, that's number one. Number two, his mission. What's his mission? Why did he come? And this should draw our attention back to Genesis, the language of from the beginning. And again, he's called the life-giving word, the word of life. How did God create? In Genesis, by his what? By his word. He brings creation about by his authoritative word. Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light. And guess what, friends? There was light, okay. That's pretty powerful, right? Hey, let there be light. The genitive phrase of life. He's the word of life. Attached to the word is very telling. He's the word of life. What does that mean? He's the word of life. He's the word that gives life. He's the word that creates life. The same word at work during the first creation was at work during the new creation, bringing what? Life. Giving life. In Jesus, the time of new creation had arrived. Jesus came to give what? I mean, why is that important? Because what are we? We're dead. And Jesus came to give life. So what does that reveal about creation about humanity if jesus came to give life it's a reminder that we are dead and we are in desperate need of life and jesus came to make us alive again ephesians 2 1 and 2 and you were dead and the trespasses and sins and what you once walked what can the dead do can't do anything what do we need to be made alive and jesus is the word of life why did he come what was his mission came to give any of life to the spiritually dead. Uh, it was so cool. We do a Bible study at Central at high school on uh, Wednesdays. And we finished a little early. And I didn't want to jump into chapter 12. Uh, we finished Mark 11. So I just spent some time walking through the gospel. We had 12 kids today, which was great. Praise God for that. And uh, 
again, I asked like a hundred questions. Okay, so why did he die to save us? Well, how did that work? And then somebody, went, well, how does that work? It was just like, I wanted to make sure that before me and Kelby left, they understood the gospel. But I was just asking question after question like I'm doing right now. I don't think you guys are stupid. I'm stupid. Uh, I do that. That's how I teach to make sure we're getting it, that we got it, right? Jesus came to make the dead us alive. Oh, man. Furthermore, the word is how God both communicates and reveals himself to his people. Do you know how many times the word word in the Hebrew is found in the Old Testament? Debar. 394 times in the context of revelation. God revealing himself through his what? Through his word. So God reveals himself primarily through his what? Through his word. Through his word. Jesus is the word of life. John wants us to see that Jesus is the one who came to, again, what's his mission? Reveal who? Reveal God. You want to know what God's like? Who should we look to? The Word, who shows us God. He shows us God. Again, how does Jesus cast out demons in the Gospels? Through His Word. How does He heal the sick and the lame? Open blind eyes? Through His Word. What power, what authority? John so identifies Jesus with salvation that refers to Jesus as the the life. That's 1 John 1, 2. Salvation, eternal life is found in? In Jesus. One thinks of John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the, the life. If you want life, come to, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Again, when you think about Jesus as the word, okay, this is point number two, his mission. Think about creation and revelation. God creates through his word, and he reveals through his word. He creates through his word, and he reveals through his word. Jesus is the author of life, both old and new, and the ultimate revelation of God. He came to reveal God, and he came to give life. That's his mission. He came to reveal God, and he came to give life. And that is emphasized by this title, Word. What does the Word do? God creates by his word. What does the Word do? He reveals himself by his word. Why did Jesus come? He came to give life and to reveal who? That's it. All right, number three is motive. You know, I think what stands out, so, I mean, again, I've spent a lot of time in John, John's gospel especially. I've translated all of it. I've translated parts of it multiple times, the whole, the whole gospel at least once through. Um, there's this emphasis on Christ being seen. Christ being seen. Why is that important that he was seen, that his works were seen? that they were witnessed, that what happened happened in time and space and it was witnessed, that the gospel and the events surrounding the gospel were seen. Why is it encouraging for us? I think about Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. What does he say? Christ was raised. And how many people saw him raised? Most of whom are still alive. 500 people saw him raised. Paul is saying he was seen. How does John begin? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. We've, we've heard, we've seen, and we've touched. We've seen. Why is that so important? He was seen. In Jesus, the invisible God has been seen. When you think of divine revelation, what's the word that comes to mind? This was in Exodus. Theophany. A theophany is a divine manifestation of God. What are some examples of theophany in the Old Testament in Exodus? How does God reveal himself visibly before his people in Exodus? Fire. Okay, fire, right? So there's the burning bush in chapter 3. There's the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And then on Mount Sinai, right, there's the, the thunder and the earthquake and the smoke. God reveals himself. What grace? Did he have to do that? But when you think of the ultimate revelation of God, what do you think about? Jesus. Jesus. The what? The incarnation. God became flesh. What were the false teachers and those who left the church denying? What were they denying? That God became flesh in the person of Jesus. But why? Why did the Son come and become man? 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. What motivated the sending of the Son? God becoming man. What's the word? Love. Love. What was his mission? He came to give life. He came to reveal God. Why? The motive? What's the word? Love. Love. Why would God reveal himself to us? Love. His desire to be known by his creation is motivated by his love for his creation. I had a Hebrew professor, uh, Gary Pratico, in seminary. Um, He was a a former um, curator for Harvard's Semitic Museum. He was an archaeologist. He traveled all over the world. And I remember one day he was telling us, guys, do you know what's different about Christianity? It's the incarnation. It's God coming to us. God becoming man. God coming to us. He goes, if you look at all the ancient Near Eastern pagan peoples, imagine mankind, you know, standing on a mountaintop, calling out to God, you know, kind of like Elijah and the prophets of Baal, cutting themselves, pulling out their hair. Where are you? Come to us. But what do we see in the Bible? It's not us going to him. It's him coming to us. And not just that, not just showing up in a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke, him becoming what? Becoming man. And why did he do that? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God came out of? Out of love. So the opening section, right, 1 John 1, 1 to 4, must be read in light of the situation. John wants his readers to fix their eyes on who? Jesus, the God King, who came to give us what? Life. On the basis of his what? What motivated it? His love. Mercy. This is the true gospel, right? Those who believe in this gospel can have assurance that they have fellowship with God and his people. So now that we've taken kind of this bird's eye view of 1 John, and really 1 John 1, 1 to 4, I want to swoop in. Can we swoop in together? I want to swoop in. Yeah, it's a good sound effects for a closer look. Thank you, Jacob. And I think it'll be helpful as we move through 1 John, this letter, to remember the larger purpose of his writing. We've got to keep that in mind throughout. So what is being emphasized in verses 1 to 4 and why? I'm going to skip. I love John's stock quote. I'm going to skip it. Um, I'll start here. The incarnation of the Son of God and his life, death, and resurrection would bring about God's eternal plan, his eternal plan to rescue a people for himself, for our joy in his what? Why does he do what he does? For his glory. So here's what I want us to see in 1 John 1, 1 to 4. Firstly, in Jesus, this is, man, this is so humbling. The God of the universe, this is in your notes, has been seen, heard, and touched. Come on, guys. Come on. In Jesus, the God of the universe has been seen, heard, and touched. It's verses 1 to 3. What grace. God has appealed to all of our senses, right? Sight, sound, and touch. This is incredible. I think far too often we fail to grasp the weightiness of the incarnation that God became man, and he lived among us. He was seen, and he was heard, and he was touched. I want to talk about the significance of eyewitness testimony. The Gospel of John and the letters of John and the, the revelations, but the revelation of John, they were not written by uninvolved figures, far removed from the cultural and temporal context, but written by who? John, an eyewitness, not just one of the 12, but one of the inner three. I mean, he was like one of the boys. And I don't... I always wondered how the other guys felt, you know, like, hey, come on, guys, we're going to go up to the mountain. We're going to go and, and pray in the garden. But, but yeah, well, everybody's like, why not us? You know, but Peter, James, and John, I mean, they were part of that inner group. And John was a part of that inner group, an intimate friend of the Son of God. So John, as one of the disciples, he saw the Son of God. He witnessed his miracles, the, the opening of blind eyes, the calming of the sea, the feeding of the 5,000, the, the casting out of demons. And he touched the Savior before and after his what? His resurrection. And this helps to bolster the veracity of John's letter. It's dependable. And of course, we as Christians know this because we believe in the infallibility 
of God's word. Amen? But isn't it cool to know that this letter was written by one who had seen, heard, and touched the Son of God? I mean, who better to witness and testify than John? Next, John, I'm sorry, John emphasizes Jesus came to give us joy. If you read 1 John, you can argue that Jesus is for our joy. Jesus is for our joy. Now, don't misunderstand this. This could get you in trouble fast, okay? Now, one could assume from this phrase, you you heard me say, Jesus is for our joy. Uh, This sounds kind of off, Chris. Jesus is for our joy? One could assume from that statement that Jesus wants us to be happy even on our own terms. Is that what it means? Of course not, right? The, The world often justifies foolish decisions by saying, well, this makes me happy, and if there is God, if there is a God, surely he wants me to be what? So it must be okay, right? Because I'm sure God is most concerned about my personal happiness. Oh, brother, we must pursue joy on whose terms? God's terms. Now, where does his word point us for joy? Where is true joy found? If you get nothing else tonight, I hope you've gotten something. True joy is found where? In Christ. Christ. Now, if I went downtown, which our downtown's not like busy and bustling, but if there was a festival, if I go to the Forest Festival and just got a microphone or a megaphone, hey, where, you know, where is joy found? I would get a whole myriad of answers, right? All kinds of crazy things would be said. But according to our text, according to God's word, joy is found in one place and one place only. Verses 3 and 4, listen. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things, why? So that our joy, your joy, our joy may be, what? Complete. John reminds his readers of the reason for this gospel proclamation, horizontal and vertical fellowship. And what does that bring? If you got fellowship with God and God's people, what does that bring inevitably? Joy. It's for your joy. The gospel is for your joy. And what does the gospel do? It produces vertical and horizontal fellowship. It guarantees what? Joy. Joy. Joy is found in a relationship with God and God's people. So that, John says, you too may have fellowship with us. Now, John uses, guys, a very important word here. It's the word koinonia. It's a funny word, koinonia. Fellowship. It denotes a relationship, even a partnership in mission. It's used of the church. It's used of the church. Daniel Aiken notes, it speaks of sharing in common something that is significant and important. It entails the joy and oneness in a group of people who are in accord regarding something that really, really matters. You share common values, beliefs, and goals. You love the same things. You pursue a common agenda. That's koinonia. That's koinonia. We, the local church, share a common love for who? For Jesus. The gospel, the word of God. We share a common commitment to truth, to stirring up one another to loving good works, to serving one another, and to the mission of reaching unbelievers with the what? With the gospel. Is that how we view this gathering? I hope so, our local church. And then we have the phrase, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now the good news of the gospel is this. Listen. The good news of the gospel is Amen? Oh, go to Revelation 21. Go to the end of our story. That's where history is heading. Why is Revelation 21, 1-4 so sweet? I love that every tear is going to be wiped away. I love there's going to be no more mourning, no more dying, no more pain. But if you go back to verses 2 and 3, we're going to be with God. He's going to be with us. Because of the gospel, we get who? We get Jesus. We get God. We get God. Did you catch John's wording in verse 3? Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is remarkable. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, who is Jesus Christ. 
Aiken writes, when, I love, this is so memorable. When Jesus becomes our Savior, God becomes our Father. When Jesus becomes our Savior, God becomes our Father. By trusting in Jesus, we get the gift of fellowship with God, who is both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we get a big family of brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, John speaks of vertical and horizontal fellowship together because both are found in Christ and both are necessary. Amen? Both are necessary. I think too often we neglect the one at the expense of the other. The Western church tends to neglect which one? The horizontal, right? What's the, the motto of the Western church often? It's me and Jesus only, right? I've met so many people like that being back in Texas. Where do you go to church? I don't go to church. Me and Jesus only. Man, that would have sounded so foreign to the New Testament church. What do you mean, you and Jesus only? What do you mean by that? No, it's, you get what? When you get Christ, you get his, you get his body, you get his people. Amen? This fellowship, fellowship with God and his people is the very essence of joy. It's that, that is the message of the Bible. That's what God has been pursuing relentlessly since the fall. And what is that? A people for his own possession. And that is where joy is found in a relationship with God and in his what? His people. Let me stop there because I got a little bit more, but I think next week we'll be able to wrap up verse four of our prologue and then jump immediately into the next section. Okay? You got to bear with me, man. Prologue, getting a lot of introduction. Can you bear with me, please? All right, let me pray. Father, we're so thankful that in Christ we get vertical fellowship with God and horizontal fellowship with the body of Christ where true joy is found. We thank you, Jesus, that you are for our joy. And this joy, thankfully, is not dependent upon our circumstances, which are ever-changing. This joy is based on the truth and the reality and the rock-solid foundation of Christ in his saving work, his life, death, and resurrection. We thank you that for those of us who have trusted in Jesus by grace, have joy because we have God the Father. We can call God Father, and we have a family of brothers and sisters in Christ that you've put into our life to help us follow Jesus together. We thank you for those gifts. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to give life and to reveal God for our joy and your glory. And we pray these things, and we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.